So this morning, we're going to see this truth that God's power in the weakness of our everyday lives proclaims the valuable work of Christ on the cross. God's power in the weakness of our everyday lives proclaims the valuable work of Christ on the cross. Power, weakness, valuable. That's what we're looking at today. Is God's power is revealed through our weakness, which presents the most valuable or treasured item that there is on this earth. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, Paul is building on this ministry of hope that John shared with us last week. In verse 6, we're told, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So God shines his light through us. That's what we saw last week, was that it was God who, who gave us this kind of ministry of hope to live out. And we saw these different aspects of of being able to, one, know that when we display and we share our faith, that the rejection is not our rejection of ourselves, but is a rejection of the Lord. And in the midst of that, that we can remain firm in his hope as our eyes are fixed to the glory of Christ. Now, God shines his light through us, that is, those who have believed on him for salvation, And it leads directly into the passage today in verse 7, where he says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the sustaining power belongs to God and not us. Now, we have to stop for a second here because we just got done saying that God's light was shining in our heart. But now we're being told that his power is displayed in jars of clay. In Greek, the word jars of clay is the word skuos, and it refers to a, a really a generic household vessel. So sometimes you'll see this in other translations translated as an earthen vessel. But the idea here is that it is a jar or a vessel. And jars of clay here, or an earthen vessel, is an everyday vessel. It's molded by hand and it's easily broken. So it's been molded by hand. It's been crafted. It's something that is not necessarily unique. And it's breakable. Now, I don't know how many of you are into baseball cards or basketball cards or football cards or whatever you're into. But when I was growing up, it was baseball cards And then occasionally some football cards and some basketball cards. Now, over time, ironically, these areas, specifically basketball and football cards, they're kind of like baseball cards were 50 years ago. Not many people purchased the football cards or the basketball cards. So those are the ones today that have actually a significant value over many of the common baseball cards today. And so... I have a baseball card that may be worth some money, or excuse me, a basketball card that may be worth some money. And what I mean by that is I know it's worth money, 
The question is just how much it's worth. And that card, I don't want touched by anybody. It's a Michael Jordan rookie card. Okay? It is. Now, all I know is that when I take that card, I want to slide it into a case that is rigid and firm and that nothing can damage that card. But the jar is not the place where it goes. Because if that jar drops, it shatters, it's broken. I don't put my treasure in a jar. I don't take that which is valuable and place it in a jar because it's easily broken. And so for many of us, we don't think of the jar as the place where our valuables go. On contrary to that, we put it in a safe and preferably a fireproof safe. Some place that will, will endure an earthquake or a flood or some other thing to keep it safe. But a jar? The roof falls in, the jar is broken. Your son walks by with a jar and drops it on the floor. Or your daughter. The dog goes by and nails it going by. This is not necessary the place that you want to put your treasure. And yet, God says that he actually uses the jar of clay for his purpose. See, the imagery of the jar of clay is actually speaking about us. People that were handmade, molded by God, easily broken. And kind of an everyday vessel. What he's saying is it doesn't matter your position in life. It only matters in your position in him. It only matters about where you are positioned with him. Have you made him your savior? Have you made him the Lord of your life? And for his followers, it is he that gives you value and of worth. See, he doesn't hide his treasure in fine china. He hides it in a jar of clay. That's good news for us. That doesn't matter then where I'm at in life. It doesn't matter what kind of education I have, how much money I have or don't have. It doesn't matter what I do for a job or the skills or abilities that I have. What only matters is that I'm a vessel made for his use. And so each pot is uniquely made, each one of us. And we're not without blemish and we're breakable. In fact, we're most often useful when we're broken. See, this jar of clay is actually designed to hold the treasure of God. That should encourage us. Our usefulness is not found in our stature, but it's found in God's power. Ray Steadman in his book, Authentic Christianity, points out, By design, God entrusts this secret to failing, faulty, weak, and sinful people 
So it will be clear the power does not originate from us. It isn't the result of a strong personality, of a keen or finely honed mind, or a good breeding and training. No, it arises solely from the presence of God in the heart. Our earthiness must be as apparent to others as the power is, so that they may see that the secret is not us, but God. That is why we must be transparent people, not hiding our weaknesses and failures, but honestly admitting them when they occur. It is the contrast that God uses jars of clay to proclaim his power. And that's an encouragement to our hearts. So what Paul begins to lay out here is then three ways that his power in our weakness is both experienced and displayed. Three ways that God's power in our weakness is experienced and displayed. Now, understand Paul is experiencing tremendous suffering. He's sharing this. And he begins in verse 8, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Paul begins right away, Listing his suffering. The believer's life most often is going to have and be marked by suffering. Now, that suffering may look different for different people. But what we need to come to a a deep conclusion for ourselves is that God did not promise us comfort in this life. He only promised us comfort in him. He didn't promise us prosperity in this life. He only promised us prosperity in him. Now, the beauty of how he lays this passage out is we see this picture of the suffering, of the turmoil But it's not in total. It's only in part. And so what we see here is life-giving sustenance. Life-giving sustenance. If you think about those words for a minute, notice the suffering. We're afflicted in every way. Persecuted, perplexed, struck down, but not crushed not driven to despair, not forsaken, and not destroyed. Who does that remind you of? Isn't that a picture of Christ on the cross? Afflicted in every way. Perplexed, meaning losing. At a loss, that's what it means, at a loss. Persecuted, struck down. I love that Greek word for perplexed. That he's at a loss. Think about that for Jesus. He's on the cross. He is the king. He's providing hope. There has to be a part of him. And it says here in scripture that he's at a loss. Isn't that a wonderful perspective? Don't we stand sometimes and look around at our world and we're just at a loss? We're like, where's the reasonableness? 
what's happened here? That's what Jesus is on the cross. He's perplexed. He's at a loss. And the Greek is actually a word play. It's two words that are moving together. And so you have this idea of being perplexed, but not driven to despair. So at a loss, but not totally lost. The beauty is we carry in our body the death of Jesus every single time we suffer. See, Jesus bore the suffering, the penalty of our sin, which was death and is death. And he bore that weight on the cross. And every time we suffer, we have to die to self. We have to die to sin. We lose our self-sufficiency. We lose our pride. We begin laying those things at the foot of the cross and we actually identify with Jesus in his death. It is what was meant by the fact that we share in Christ's sufferings because it is through Christ's sufferings that people experienced life. Therefore, it is in our sufferings that others will experience his life. And yet all this occurs in the believer's life so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Not crushed, not driven to despair, not forsaken, and not destroyed. Now, a quick point of clarity, especially as we're approaching Easter, is it strange that he says here, not crushed? I don't think so. We know that Jesus was afflicted in every way, but he wasn't crushed. It wasn't final. We know that he was perplexed, but not driven to despair at a loss, but not lost totally. We know that in all of this, that he was not destroyed, and yet it says that we're not forsaken. And if you recall, Jesus on the cross says, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? Now, Jesus was forsaken by the father, separated from his presence as he carried the judgment of our sin upon him in his physical death. Yet through Christ in his resurrection, the atonement for our sin and the defeat of death, we are not forsaken. So although Jesus in that moment was forsaken by the Father because of our sin, he did not quit on his purpose. He did not abandon the purpose for our sake. It was actually in his own forsakenness by the Father because of the weight of our sin that Jesus actually at the same exact time is not forsaking us. He's actually doing the very thing 
that is drawing us into eternal relationship with him. Isn't that fascinating? Isn't that encouraging? That we have a Savior that loved us, that even in the midst of his own forsakenness, was doing the very thing that was going to allow us to be in relationship with the Father. And that's why he says, not forsaken, persecuted, but not forsaken. This last year, there was an experience just in my own life where this understanding of forsakenness has taken me a long time to grip and to grab. And I spent time chewing on it and sitting on it and holding it. It is the part that Jesus cries out the most about. We wonder sometimes what eternal damnation will look like. Scripture describes it as a place of fire. As a a place of eternal torment and punishment. But notice what Jesus cried out about. It actually wasn't the pain of his suffering that he cried out about. It was the forsakenness that he cried out about. And the tormenting of the soul of being separated from God. The grace that we receive by being children of God. And then the common grace that even those who have rejected the gospel receive. Because God still holds things in his hand currently. Thessalonians tells us that there will be a day where that hand will be removed. And the total depravity of man will encompass the earth until Christ returns. I want to encourage you, there may be no greater punishment than being separated from God. Encourage you to think and to pray and to seek Him with all your heart. Hebrews 13, 5 through 6 affirms this when it says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Sam Storms puts it simply, human weakness presents no barriers to God's purposes. When God wants to achieve a seemingly impossible task, he takes a seemingly impossible person and breaks him. He breaks him of self-sufficiency, of pride, of self-confidence, of position, and of power. Ultimately, we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh, but life in you. Jesus is the one who sustains and makes his power known through us. And this is why Micah can prophetically declare in Micah 7, 8, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy, when I fall. I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. What an awesome truth. What a wonderful encouragement. In our suffering, 
God gives us life-giving sustenance. On April 23rd, I just want to encourage you. I want to share with you that one of the things that's happening is uh, one of my doctors that I had seven years ago in San Francisco who became a friend. I've shared with you a little bit about his story. He came to Christ in medical school and God put him in my life for this season and was a doctor with me in the city. And then as we developed a close relationship, shared, I can't be your doctor anymore, but I'll be with you each day. About a year and a half ago or two years ago now, he began seminary. And so he's going to come up and preach on, on, on April 23rd. And he's going to share God's testimony in his own life and the own work of God, how he brought him to Christ in this season of life. But here's the thing. Our strength is not found in our intellect. It's not found in the modern medicine of the world. It's not found in some deep program that we, we, we think might help us figure out life. It's found in the power of God and Christ sustaining life. That Christ resides in us and he is the one that is being displayed. So what is the treasure of the gospel that's being in the jar? The jar that is you, that God has placed in you, it is the death and life of Jesus. The treasure is the death and life of Jesus. It points directly to the cross. And that's why Paul could declare, so death is at work in us, but life in you. That is, Paul was suffering. There were those that were seeing Jesus in him, which was giving life to them, both encouraging their hearts and for those who didn't know Christ, now beginning to see the reality and truth of who Jesus is. And so in our suffering, be reminded that we have the death and life of Christ in us. That God has called us to suffer. But in his life, he will sustain us. That in the end, even if this life should end, and it will, we were not defeated because we now stand resurrected with him. So the second thing then is, Faith-assured thanksgiving. Faith-assured thanksgiving. God's power first displayed through life-giving sustenance. The second is through faith-assured thanksgiving. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Now that passage is taken directly from Psalm 1, 1610. And that psalm deals with the deliverance and the promised deliverance of God. And so in Psalm 116, it says, I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. He continues then in verse 15 through 18, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. So he's saying, listen, 
The faith that I have is in Christ and in Christ alone. And this faith or the faith in the Messiah is going to bring about a heart within me because the Lord sees my death as precious. And yet because the bonds of my sin have been freed, the chains have been released, I'm going to offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And I'm going to call on the name of the Lord. Now notice his confidence here. This faith is not just a blind faith, but it's rooted in the knowledge of who God is. It says, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Why can I give thanksgiving when the opportunity does not seem like it warrants it? It is because God has raised us from the dead And in raising us from the dead, there will be a day in which we will all be together in his presence for all who have believed on him. That's an awesome thing. It's something that people in our world can't figure out. Why would you have an assured thanksgiving? Why do you have faith with confidence? Our hearts, when we despair, when we're discouraged, when we're persecuted, when we're perplexed, need to be one of thanksgiving. In Philippians 4, we're told, For the Lord is at hand. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Have you ever tried going through the day and just walking and moving to a place of constantly thanking God. If you're like me, that's a hard exercise because I can often see the problems before I see the blessings. And it's been an area that God has worked on my life and continue to work on my life. And in doing this practice of going before the Lord and just thanking him daily. And when I find myself either in temptation or I see myself wanting to be directed towards an, an area or, or uh, into a, a, a place where my attitude is going to, to falter. Moving to a place of thanksgiving has changed the perspective. One of the things that we have to offer as believers is thanksgiving. It differs from the world. The world does not approach their sorrows with a heart of thanksgiving. And it doesn't mean that we walk in and we're sadistic and we're thanking the Lord for every bad thing that's happened. But we turn around and we see that God has a purpose in the things that we're enduring. And sometimes it's just thanking God knowing that my purpose is not in vain, my suffering is not in vain. That you will allow me to see it in time. During this past year, one of the things that happened was there were lots of things that God taught me.
I remember somebody came to me and it was well-meaning, not somebody here. But they said, you know, God's just got a lesson for you. And I'll tell you what my heart was. My heart was to actually give him the finger. That was where I was at. That's an honest perspective. It was like, you're out of your mind right now. Like, I get that. It, it, if we understand what is really happening, all of life, God is giving us a lesson. But the lesson isn't always corrective. It's pruning. But there are many times that in our suffering, God is displaying his power for his purpose. And there are many times that God is revealing new things about his own nature in our lives and exposing areas where maybe doubt or areas where we need to actually tighten up. But I remember looking at the person and just sharing with them, I know God has a purpose in this. What that is yet, I don't know. But I know that he's present. I know that he's here. And because he's present and here, and because one day I will be present with him and with his church, I can give thanksgiving. I don't have more to give. And a part of that conversation was the individual said, what is God teaching you? What has God taught you through this trial? Have you learned it? Sometimes that takes time, does it not? It takes seasons. But we're called to a faith-assured thanksgiving. And it's empowered by Christ's life within us. How is it that we can thank when everyone else is despairing? It is because Christ's life in us, his resurrecting power. And notice what he says here. He says that it is for your sake and for the glory of God. See, Warren Wearsby puts it this way. When we learn to live a day at a time confident of God's care, it takes a great deal of pressure off our lives. Yard by yard, life is hard. Inch by inch, life's a cinch. We don't live on future grace, and we don't live on borrowed grace. We live on present grace. Today has its own troubles, but there is mercy for them because every morning has new mercies. That's what he's saying. And our faith and the resurrection of Jesus is for our sake and God's glory. And so the treasure is the resurrection is for our sake and God's glory. The treasured gospel, the death and life of Jesus in us, the treasured gospel, the resurrection of Christ is for our sake and his glory. That's awesome. And then finally, the third way that the power of God 
is displayed and experienced within this jar of clay is a hopeful, F-U-L-L, hopeful renewal. It's not something that we are looking to as a wish. It is that hope has filled our hearts because we have seen Christ at work within us and renews us. He says, so we don't lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. The body is in a state of decay. We celebrate the work of Christ. You see, if we don't celebrate the work of Christ, because our body is constantly in a state of decay, there will always be grief. We'll always be mourners. He says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Think about that for a minute. He says, the worst trial that you've endured is a light momentary affliction. Wow. A light momentary affliction. Now, when I think of light momentary affliction, I think of like a splinter. That's a light momentary affliction. God's saying here, the worst tragedy, the worst suffering that you can imagine, the worst persecution, the worst affliction, being struck down, being perplexed, the worst that this has, life has to offer for the believer is simply like a splinter compared to the eternity and beauty with Christ. It's just a splinter. A splinter. That's why we can be renewed each day. It's why when you watch somebody who is sick and dying and yet has the life of Christ, it's an amazing thing. I had a friend, Mel Strom, who of all things, had kidney cancer. When I went to Windsor and came, he was the deacon that was assigned to stay with me as I candidated at the church. And he followed me. He went with me everywhere I went. And over the course of several years, we developed a good relationship. And when he was diagnosed with kidney cancer and when it, they had thought they had gotten it and then it came back and went into stage four cancer, Mel went everywhere. He jumped on his motorcycle and he started riding around the state and going throughout the country, sharing with his old high school friends and his old Navy friends the gospel of Jesus. And people just couldn't quite understand it. But there was a renewal in him. And the renewal wasn't this kind of renewed passion for the gospel. It was a spiritual renewal. There was life in him. It was something that couldn't be explained. His body was withering away, and yet he was full of life and full of joy. And the gentleness that he displayed towards others, that's what it's talking about. 
It's a renewal that is based in the hope-filled presence of Christ. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed with us. In fact, Romans 8 goes on to talk about it as like child pains. That they'll be forgotten. The sufferings of this life will be forgotten in comparison to the weight of the eternal glory. Now, Now think about that for a moment. The eternal glory beyond all comparison, that God is going to have something for you as he is working in you, that he is preparing you for something so great that you can't even fathom it. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear had heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. That's what he's prepared for you. What no eye has seen, What no ear has heard and what no heart has imagined, that is what God has prepared for you. That is the eternal weight of glory. Isn't that awesome? That's why we can be a hopeful people. It's why we can be hopeful or have hopeful renewal. And that is why he says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Colossians 1 verse 4 says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. We set our minds on the things of God, the promises of God. And so what is the treasure? The treasure of the cross is the future eternal glory. So we experience the glory of his presence now, but there will be a future eternal glory that Christ has promised through the cross. And so the treasure that he has given you through the cross, is a future eternal glory. So our lives both experience this life-giving sustenance, this faith-assured thanksgiving, and this hopeful renewal. And it is in those things that the gospel of Christ is actually displayed through your life. It's not about the right words to say. It is about being a vessel that holds his treasure within the death and life of Christ, the knowledge that the resurrection is for our sake and his glory, and that we have a future eternal glory. And it is in that that the power of God is seen clearly. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the power that you have granted to us, that you have placed within us. God, you have done it by your design and by your ways, and we thank you that it's not done in our ways, God, because we would screw it up. Thank you for using us, a broken people, a 
a people who have been molded by you, but have nothing really unique to offer you except for a heart of faith. Offering you our lives in lordship and submission to you. Father, thank you for the wonderful gift of being a jar of clay. And thank you for placing placing your treasure inside of us. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.